You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of John. Here's Nate. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 19 through 51, John seems to go to great pains to demonstrate for us that Jesus, in large part because of the Gospel, is worthy of our devotion. In short, you could say that he is worth following. And we see that here as John the Baptist in this passage declares that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Son of God. And then he actually takes his own disciples and points out specifically Jesus once again as Jesus walks by and says, Behold, the Lamb of God. They then leave John and follow Jesus. And so we have a beautiful picture here, which enables us to say that Jesus is worth following. And of course, he is worth following because of the gospel. Now, shifting into John chapter 1 verse 19 means that we have shifted now into the bulk and the body of the book of John. Chapter 1 verse 1 through 18 is merely the prologue where John the writer is introducing all kinds of themes for us that Jesus is the the light uh, that he is life that he became flesh dwelt among us uh, themes of glory and grace and truth and that Jesus came uh, giving something greater than the law that was given through Moses but grace and truth which came through Jesus Christ But the main theme that John gave us in chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, is this. That Jesus is the Word of God, and that the Word of God makes God known. What that means is, I mean, just like you would perhaps look at your own child. And in a moment of throwing a fit, you might say to a child, use your words. Tell me with your words what's going on inside of you. Jesus is the best expression of God and who God is and what his desires are and priorities and attributes and character. And the reason that he is the best word or expression of who God is is because he is God himself, God the Son. And so uh, that's what we had in those first 18 verses. And now we shift to the actual story of the Gospel of John, where Jesus will now be presented to us. And mostly in this presentation, Jesus will become opposed. But here now he's presented to the world, starting with the ministry of a man named John the Baptist, who we saw a little bit of in the prologue in verse 1 through 18. So now in verse 19, we pick up the story. It says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, verse 20, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So the first thing that we notice is that they're coming to discover the identity of John the Baptist. And before he tells them who he is scripturally from the Old Testament standpoint, he tells them who he's not from the Old Testament standpoint. First, they want to know, are you the Christ? He freely confesses. John goes to great pains to say he confessed, he did not deny, 
but he confessed. So this is with, with absolute certainty. John the Baptist says, I am not the Christ. Don't confuse me, John is saying, with the Christ. Now, the phrase the Christ is a New Testament way of saying the Old Testament idea of the Messiah. And it just literally means the anointed one. So the Messiah and the Christ are synonymous. It means the anointed one. And this meant different things for different people. For some people, this was an entirely political ruler that they were looking for. For many people, was someone who was a coming king in the line of David to take the Davidic promise of being seated on the throne in Jerusalem. And so John declares emphatically, I am not the Christ. Then they ask him, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? Now, John was very similar to Elijah, and that's probably why they asked this question in one part. I mean, he dressed similarly to Elijah. He had a ministry that was very confrontational of religious leaders, much like Elijah. Uh, he did ministry in the wilderness, very similar to Elijah. And we learn in the Gospel of Luke that he actually came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. And so he was a man very similar to Elijah in ministry, so similar, in fact, that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 14, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And so they wanted to know, are you Elijah? Now, probably the major reason that they asked this question, they definitely noticed the similarities between John and Elijah, but the last two verses of their Bibles the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, were about the coming or the promise of the coming of Elijah once again. Verse 5 says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so they were anticipating the coming of Elijah. And so they ask, Are you Elijah? And John's response is, I am not. And then finally, are you the prophet? Uh, this is probably alluding to the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, where Moses says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so I believe that that prophecy is about Jesus, that Jesus was the prophet who is to come like Moses he would institute a covenant with God's people. Moses's we refer to as the old or first covenant and Jesus's covenant as the new covenant. But many people wondered, was John the prophet that Moses had spoke of? And John here said his answer then was no. And it's interesting to note that his answers to these questions grow progressively shorter. It's as if John is just trying to say, hey, I'm not here to talk about me. That's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to do something entirely different. And that's where he goes in verse 22 when it says, they, so they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Now, so we know who you're not. Tell us who you are, they say in verse 22. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said. So he says, you know, you're going back to the Old Testament and wondering if I'm the Christ that's been promised. No. 
You're going back to the Old Testament and wondering if I'm Elijah who is promised. No. You're going back to the Old Testament and you're wondering if I'm the prophet who is to come. The answer is no. But you should go back to the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 40 verse 3. It says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And John says, if you go back to that Old Testament passage, you have found what I am all about. That's me. I'm a fulfillment of that particular prophecy. We already saw, of course, in the prologue that John came to be a witness about Jesus, to cry out, uh, to say that he who comes after me ranks before me, to bear witness of the light. That's the kind of light that Jesus brought. It, it, it was still a light that needed to be testified of, to, to be born witness to. And so John declares, he says, listen, I'm the prophet who's promised in Isaiah 40, verse 3. Which is an interesting statement because it clarifies for us, it gives us another deity statement regarding Jesus. Because the prophecy says, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in, a, in the desert a highway for our God. And John says, this is about me in preparing the way for Jesus. And so much like the kings of the day, when a king would come into town, they would prepare the roads and repair the roads for the king. They would level out the valleys and knock down the mountains and take out the curves. And, and there would be reconstruction and, and all of that attention paid to the roads in preparation for that king and his armies and his people. And so John says, that's what I'm doing. I'm preparing the way for Jesus. Now, verse 24, it says that now they had been sent from the Pharisees, these religious leaders, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Notice the question, why are you baptizing? And all I'll say about that at this point is that John is not going to answer that question immediately. He has already started talking about preparing the way of the Lord, and he wants to continue talking about that Lord. And so John answered, verse 26, and said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. So there he is, prophesying to the people, and they ask him, why, you know, the religious leaders ask him, why are you baptizing? And, and before he answers that question, he continues on with this theme of, I'm here to prepare the way of the Lord, by saying, listen, there is a great one in your midst. You don't know him. I'm baptizing with water, but he, I'm not even worthy to loosen his sandal strap. Now the loosening of the sandal strap was actually the job that was reserved for the low man on the totem pole as far as the slaves were concerned in any given household during that day and age. And so John is saying, I'm so little. You're, you're so infatuated with figuring out who I am. You want to know, am I the Christ? Am I Elijah? Am I the prophet? Who is this guy out in the wilderness? Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? And John says, do you know what I am in comparison to him? I'm lower than the lowest slave in the household. And I'm not even worthy to loose the sandal strap on his feet. That's how great this one is. 
that is coming after me. And I think in, the, in that, we should just camp for a moment and realize that Jesus is worth following because he is great. Because he is great. I mean, he, Jesus, uh, John speaks of him as, as the Lord. I'm preparing the way of the Lord. And here he speaks of him as so high and so lofty that he's not even worthy to loosen his sandal strap. We've got to understand that Jesus is worth following because he's great. He's worth following because he's Lord of all. And really, when you think about the gospel, you have to remember that it isn't just simply that Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the grave. But what did he do after he rose from the grave? It says that he ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is on the throne. He is seated. He is in a position of prominence and authority. And whether we behave as if he's the king or not, he is the king. And he is worth following because he is great. And he is great because he is God. Now in verse 29, we have the sequence of days. It says in verse 29, the next day. And we're going to see that again in verse 35, the next day. And in verse 43, the next day. And in chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day. And so you have this sequence of days, as John records it. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Obviously, this is a major statement that John is making. As a Christian, I can look back on this statement and I can see that Jesus, as he died on the cross and shed his blood, became the sacrificial lamb which enabled me to be cleansed from my sin when I placed my faith and my trust in him. I can see that from this vantage point. But you have to remember, the time that John the Baptist is speaking, the Messiah was not thought of as a sacrificial figure. They weren't imagining that he would shed his blood. They weren't imagining that he would die. They weren't imagining that he would be a sacrifice for anyone or anything. And so for John to make this statement, this is extremely prophetic. I think so prophetic that perhaps John really didn't even fully understand or comprehend what he was saying. I mean, it's just so heavy that you can really only see it on the other side of the cross. Now, people have argued about which sacrifice and which lamb in the Old Testament sacrificial system John is referring to. But I just receive it as a general connection to the Old Testament sacrificial system and that Jesus is the lamb sacrificed for us, able to take away our sin. It says in Romans chapter 5, verse 19, that as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam, many were made sinners because of Adam. So by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. That's you and me, those who have placed their faith and trust and confidence in him. And isn't it refreshing and good to know that Jesus Christ can take away sin, that he can take away, that he takes away the sin of the world. That's an impressive reality. And so John goes on and says in verse 30, he says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed in Israel. And John bore witness and said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, 
But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness, John said, that this is the Son of God. So John says some interesting things here. In verse 30, he tells us, and he says to these those who are questioning him, he says, There is one coming after me who ranks before me because he was before me. So Jesus, who was born after John, who appeared in ministry publicly after John, who came in that sense after John, John says, he actually ranks before me because he was before me. What does that mean? Well, that's speaking, of course, of the eternal nature of Jesus. John had introduced this theme in chapter 1, verse 2, when he said that Jesus was in the beginning with God. The Word was in the beginning with God. He's eternal in nature. And that's what the Baptist is referring to when he says that he was before me. But remember the question that they had asked? They had said, why are you baptizing? And John fully ignored them for a whole day. But after that day was over, he then begins to answer their question when he says in verse 31, For this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And then he describes how he was revealed to Israel in that there was a day where Jesus was baptized and on his day of baptism, the Spirit came upon him and rested upon him. And then John knew that Jesus was the promised Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. That Jesus was the anointed one, anointed not with physical oil, but with the oil of the Spirit of God. And so in one sense, what John is saying is fascinating because he's declaring the reason that I'm baptizing is to really just to wait for him to show up. I didn't know who he was, but I just kept baptizing, waiting for that moment when the spirit would come down and rest upon the person I baptized and he would be the one that is the Messiah. He would be the anointed one. And John declares and says, it is is Jesus. He saw Jesus walking by toward him and said, Behold, this is the man. And I've borne witness, he said in verse 34, that he is the Son of God. Interesting line there in verse 33. He says, This will be the one, or this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so just to remember that Jesus takes a person and immerses them fully in his spirit. This is his work. This is his ministry. It's a good thing for us to remember. Jesus would tell his disciples in Acts chapter 1 to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father. Just as John baptized in water, so would he baptize with the Holy Spirit. And to wait in Jerusalem, and when the Spirit came upon them, they would receive power to be his witnesses. The, the energy that we need and the fuel that we need to be able to do what God has called us to do in this world comes from the Holy Spirit himself, whom Jesus pours out upon his people. Now the next day, verse 35, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. <laughs> it's almost as if the day before when he said it, he was trying to get his disciples to begin following Jesus. They didn't do it. So the next day, Jesus walks by again, and John makes the same declaration, perhaps with a slightly more intense tone. 
And it says here in verse 2 that the two disciples heard him in verse 37. They heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? So two of these disciples, one of them being Andrew, the other unknown to us, but possibly John, our author, they follow after Jesus, and Jesus sees them following, and he asks them a simple question. He says, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Now, they call him rabbi, a title for teacher, very respectful, but it tells us that they're not sure who he is at this point. They're willing to confess that he's a rabbi or a teacher, but, but then their response is, where are you staying? Now, at first glance, it almost looks as if these men are just completely and entirely superficial. You know, they're following Jesus. Jesus turns around. What are you seeking? What are you looking for in life? What are you pursuing? What, what is it that you really want in this world? And it almost seems that their response is just so superficial in the sense that they just say, well, we, we just want to know, uh, you know, where, where are you living? Where do you live? But as you observe this text, it actually seems as if what's happening here is that these disciples want to have an elongated time to interview Jesus, to question him, to hear from him, to receive from his teaching. They call him rabbi, teacher. And so they really just want to sit down and investigate Jesus. And so he said to them, verse 39, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour, probably four o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. By this time, everybody knows who Peter is in the church, so John, when he writes this, says it was Andrew, that's Simon Peter's brother. And he found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Now, what this indicates is that somehow through the conversation that they had with Jesus, somehow through the time that they spent in the home that Jesus was lodging in, these disciples, these two men, Andrew and the other disciple, came to the determination that they probably had the Messiah on their hands. Now, when they say that, they're not yet confessing that he'll die for their sin. They're not yet understanding the gospel. But they understand that there's something special about Jesus. And after spending some time listening to him and hearing from him, they understand he's more than just a teacher. He's more than just a rabbi. He is the Messiah. It's as, it, it's as John said in John chapter 1 verse 9, when he said the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. Jesus enlightened these men during those hours of conversation and so Simon runs to his or excuse me Andrew runs to his brother Simon and says we found the Messiah which means the Christ we found him we've discovered him and so verse 42 like a good evangelist he brought him to Jesus please oh please oh please let us bring people to Jesus not to a program, not to a church, but 
mostly to Jesus. Let it be about Jesus. That's who people need to meet. And Jesus looked at Simon and said, So you're Simon, son of John? You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. <laughs> now this is an audacious thing that Jesus does. If you just think about it. Have you ever done this to someone? Have you ever met them and in your first meeting you look at them and say, Oh, your name is, uh, your name's Joe, huh? Well, your name will be called Albert. I mean, this is amazing that Jesus is doing this. This is the kind of thing that God does. God who named Adam is now naming Peter. And I just love this from the Lord because what it tells us is that Jesus, well, he changes people. He changes us from the inside out. He looks at this man, Simon, and he says, listen, there's a Peter in there. There's a rock in there. There's a, there's a strength in there and a calling in there. There's something inside of you that you don't even know about yet. And I'm declaring it over you and about you. And Jesus is that name changer. And I don't know about you, but I can think of so many ways and times in my life that Jesus has changed me from the inside out and has declared me to be something other than what I was. And here he looks at Simon and says, Someday you won't be referred to as Simon any longer. It'll be Peter. And sure enough, that unfolded in Peter's life. Now, verse 43, it says that the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael. Now, we're not too sure who this Nathanael character is. He may be Bartholomew. This could be another name for him, another given name. Could be Matthew. But this man, Nathanael, it says that Philip found him and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So he says, hey, the Messiah, the one that the prophets wrote of, it's Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph's son. Nathanael responded by saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> he, he was prejudiced against the city, looked down his nose upon it, perhaps just from personal experience, perhaps somehow from scripture. And Philip said to him, Come and see. And so Jesus saw, verse 47, Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you're the Son of God, you're the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? you'll see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is a very Old Testament filled kind of passage. But in short, he says to Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there's no deceit, a Jacobite, Jacob who had deceived so many, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael is blown away. How'd you see me? And Jesus says, you'll see greater things than this. In fact, you'll see the angels ascending and descending upon me. You might remember when Jacob deceived and fled from his family. He went to Bethel where he received a vision of the ladder from heaven, where the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. And I think Jesus is basically saying to Nathanael, 
You're about to see the kingdom of heaven working here on earth in some miraculous ways. Fasten your seatbelt, buddy, because it's about to go down, starting with the first miracle of Jesus in John chapter 2. And so Jesus is definitely worth following uh, because he's the Lamb of God, he's the miracle worker, and he is the Christ. God bless you, and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.